Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. There remains much debate over the legacy of our own Barack, but what is beyond dispute is that no one has had a more profound impact on his nation's highest court than he has. Aaron Barak became an Israeli Supreme Court Justice in 1978 and was elevated to Chief Justice in 1995. During his tenure, Justice Barak led what he called a constitutional revolution, and under its banner, his rulings touched upon almost every aspect of Israeli life, from the way security personnel treat their prisoners, to the rights of gay couples, to the legality of prohibiting Arab-Israeli citizens from living in communities that had been built exclusively for Jews. After stepping down from the Israeli court in, in 2006, Justice Barak has divided his time between teaching at Hebrew University in Jerusalem and at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, where he joins us today. Aaron Barak, welcome to our Legally Speaking series. Thank you. I, since we are here at Yale, I, I thought I would throw out the phrase counter-majoritarian difficulty. And it does have a, a Yale connection That's right. because it was a Yale law professor who came up with this, I believe it was in the early 60s. And he used it to describe those situations where unelected judges uh, assert their power to overrule laws that reflect the will of the people. And by so doing, he argued, uh, it puts these judges at odds with the whole idea of representative government. Now, as the judge who asserted uh, your court's power to overrule the laws passed by the Knesset, I'm wondering whether you think this whole counter-majoritarian difficulty thing is highly overrated. Uh, yeah, I think it is <laughs> very much overrated. In fact, I don't think it's a problem. Not uh, at all. I don't think it's a, a problem at all. Uh, for the following reason. I agree that uh, the judge is a counter-majoritarian force. As the judges in most countries of the world, with the exception of sta some state judges in the United States, is not elected. Uh, but this doesn't create the countermajoritarian difficulty. The countermajoritarian difficulty was created by the Constitution itself. Mm. The Constitution is a counter-democratic, a countermajoritarian document, because it's the Constitution who was uh, constituted many years ago in the United States in 1793, the Bill of Rights, let's say, uh, years and years ago. And this document binds the legislature. So the Constitution is a counter-majoritarian document. By I agree. its very nature. By its very nature. Yeah. And what the judges are, what, and what is the judge's uh, function? Mm -hmm. The judge's function is to construe the Constitution. Yeah. And uh, to the extent that they are loyal to the Constitution, they are loyal to the counter-majoritarian argument. Mm -hmm. Before you uh, came on the uh, Israeli Supreme Court, you had already an extremely eventful life. Uh, you were uh, uh, born in a small town in Lithuania 
1936, so when you were five years old, the Nazis invaded. I, I understand that uh, your parents managed to smuggle you out of the, the Jewish ghetto and by so doing saved your life. Uh, they, they smuggled you out in a, in, a, in a bag of some sort. That's right. How vividly do you remember your, yourself being carried away in that fashion? I was then eight years of age. So I do remember, yeah. but I don't know how much is how much I remember reality and how much I remember stories about reality. Uh -huh. But one way or the other, the facts are there. Yes, uh, we were in the ghetto. We entered there something like 30,000 Jews. And I think uh, after the war, uh, maybe 5,000 or Man. less were yeah. remained alive. And many of your family members were murdered, right? Well, in Lithuania, 95% of all Jews were murdered. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. everyone who is alive is a miracle. So mm -hmm. everyone has stories. Mm -hmm. We could have 5,000 books uh, about it. And you were carried off in a bag in a cart, I believe, right? A horse-drawn right, cart? Right. And, and you ended up in a, at a farmer's house. A farmer took you in. That's right. Uh, but in this farmer's place, we were. I think I was only one night. Or, and then uh, I was uh, sent with other Jewish families uh, to, let's call it, the first uh, uh, Lithuanian peasant with whom we spent uh, several weeks. Uh -huh. He just uh, sacrificed his life and uh, let uh, families to stay with, here, with and, him. And, he and at some point when there were too many... He, he distributed them to other families. Uh -huh. So we went to family number two. And, 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 by, and he not only sacrificed his life, he also sacrificed the, the life of his wife and his children. It's yes, I mean, it's unbelievable what those peasants, Christian peasants, uh, they have done for us. I mean, they saved our lives. Yeah. Uh, no money involved. We didn't have any money. Uh, I went back to meet... The family again, the parents were already dead as my parents are dead, but the children, my age, are still alive. And so they remember me and I remember them. Mm -hmm. And I presented them with the question, tell me, why have your parents saved our lives? If, if your parents would be caught by the Germans, we would be immediately shot, goes without saying, but also they would be shot. And their children... Yeah. So how come they have done it? And they looked at me and they said, we don't understand the question. Hmm. You needed help. We could help you. That's the humanity. Well, and well, I, you know, yeah. I asked myself then, yeah. would I do it? Yeah. Tough question. I mean, because by doing it, you not only uh, endanger yourself, but you endanger your children. That's you right. uh, expose them to the possibility of ending up in a Nazi death camp. I mean, it's a moral thing. It's a heroic thing to save others. But when you're exposing the lives of your children to that kind of danger for the benefit of saving strangers, in your mind, is that the right thing to do? I mean, I don't know the answer to that question. Well, this... This is something that everyone has to make for himself. Mm -hmm. It's of the, part of the liberty of the law, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And they have decided uh, to do it. They receive the, the they are in Yad Vashem in, in Israel, there is this institute that uh, 
in which they were recognized as the righteous. And a tree is planted for every one of them. And so, and my parents would send them goods in, uh, during the uh, Russian period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I visited their grave and I put some flowers there. And uh, I mean, they were really wonderful. You were eventually reunited with your parents and yes. ended up uh, in 1947 in what was then called Palestine, which would within a year be called Israel. Uh, you went to law school there. Um, and uh, in 1960, I believe, you were working in the Attorney General's office in Israel when uh, Israeli agents had managed to capture a- Adolf Eichmann in Argentina and brought him back to Jerusalem to be tried. I understand that you didn't want to be involved at all in that prosecution and that you requested and got a transfer to another department so you wouldn't be involved. That's right. Why, why did you feel that way? Well, you know, as, as a Holocaust survivor, it's not easy for me uh, to, to go back to, to the memories. Therefore, you can see also that I, I answer quite shortly on, on, on questions you ask me. I could give you much more <laughs> details yes. about them. Uh, and so I didn't want to, um, to, to, to go again to all these memories, to all, this, to all those events. It's not that I was against the, the trial in Israel. I, thou- I thought it was an important trial. I thought that Hannah Arendt was wrong about her criticism of it. Uh-huh. And, but um, I myself just asked to be relieved. If he would say no, it would be no. Later, when I was a judge already on the court, we had the Manu case. Yes. Again, I asked my chief justice, let me take someone else. But uh, he couldn't. He said, no, I, I want you. And I have done it. I mean, so it's... Yeah. Uh, but was it hard? It was very hard, yes. Yeah, yeah. Eichmann ultimately was found guilty, of course, and he was uh, executed. Um, He was, uh, I believe, the second man uh, to be executed in Israel. I believe the first was later exonerated. That's right. uh, But uh, he he was accused of being a spy, and it turns out he wasn't, um, which, you know, put the death penalty, gave it a shaky start. But what's the status of the death penalty now in Israel? Well, for regular crimes, we don't have a death penalty. Uh-huh. So uh, life imprisonment is the maximum one can get. One can get. If we have still death penalty in, in three cases. A, uh, offenses against uh, uh, genocide. Yes. And this kind of offenses. Is that equivalent to crimes against humanity? Crimes against humanity. Yeah. This is the Eichmann yes. trial. Yes. Then we have it also for terrorists who commit uh, very, very severe crimes. Uh, again, it was never used. Uh, my, all the attorney generals of Israel have declared policies not to ask judges to impose a death penalty. Mm-hmm. So no death penalty was imposed. There was one case in which the judges imposed death penalty without the request of the prosecution, and the prosecution appealed. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was changed to life. And the third one, if uh, a soldier commits um, treason in the face of the enemy, mm-hmm. never used. Mm-hmm. Do you have any fundamental problem with the death penalty for those yes. sorts of crimes? You do? Yes, I do. I do have. I think... Uh, it's uh, 
It's cruel and unusual, and therefore even it for be. these extreme crimes that you're talking yes. about. That's so you were sitting a, a sitting judge when the John Damianyuk uh, yes. was uh, being uh, tried. The the, the, uh, the charge was that he was Ivan the Terrible, this notorious guard. He ultimately uh, you ultimately determined that uh, there was not enough evidence to make a positive identification. Well, yeah. basically, what we d we said that there's not enough evidence, enough in the sense beyond reasonable doubt, right. that he's Ivan the Terrible. Right. We did decide that he was Ivan the less terrible. <laughs> so in other words, that yeah. he was one of the guards. Yeah, and he's, he's in trouble now. Or and still. he's in trouble now. Yeah. I think not, not so much in Treblinka as he was the guard in Subivor. But if, if your court had ruled you know, against him, would he have gotten the death penalty? Yes. But you were fundamentally against the death penalty. That's that, right. that, that, that put you in a very conflicted uh, situation. That's right. But yeah, that's right. So, uh, what were my options? Uh, to say to my chief, no. Uh, he needed me, and uh, so I have done it. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you ask me if if I would like to sit on those cases, I, I'm, I'm sure that no judge likes to sit on those cases. Mm -hmm. But the moment you have it in your system, it's part, it's part of the rules of the game that you have to sit in those cases. If you will not sit, another judge will sit mm -hmm. who, f who may feel as bad as you feel about it. Mm -hmm. So uh, I had no, ma no other choice but, but to resign, and that was too much. It didn't, it didn't go so deep as to require resignation. Mm -hmm. But philosophically, I think that it's, it, it's wrong and in, in, in the cases of terrorists, it's, it's even not prudent. But if the evidence was beyond a reasonable doubt that, 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 that Damanyanyuk uh, was Ivan the Terrible, you would have, had, you would have been able to, make, to rule that he was knowing that yes. he would have gotten the death penalty. Of course. Otherwise, yeah. I would not perform in my, my yeah. job. Yeah. I, I want to flash forward to uh, 19, uh, 1977. And uh, have you talk a little bit about your role in the resignation of Yitzhak Rabin, who was prime minister then? Uh, you, you were the country's attorney general at the time, and it had been determined that Rabin's wife had, in violation of Israeli law, uh, uh, had an, a, a bank account in the United States. I think you made it pretty clear that if Rabin didn't step down, uh, you would put him on trial, and he ultimately did step down. I, I wonder, given this crime, uh, this alleged crime, uh, which at least on Wall Street terms would be rate you know less than a parking ticket, <laughs> I'm wondering whether, with the benefit of hindsight, you perhaps were a little too tough on on on, on Rabin. When he, re I didn't tell him that if you resign, I will not prosecute him. I told him that I'm going to prosecute him. Then he resigned. Then I told him that I see him as a hardship case. Him, but not his wife. So she was put on trial, convicted, and a, a heavy fine was imposed on her. Uh huh. Uh huh. And and I think that the lesson learned was a very important one. Equality before the law. Mm -hmm. Everyone is equal, whether you are prime minister or any other human being in the state of Israel. And I think this lesson was learned. So on the basis of that principle, the Rabin government falls. There's another election. 
and Likud wins. Uh, Menachem Begin becomes the prime minister, effectively ending this uh, dominance that the Labor Party had had since the beginning uh, of uh, Israel's, uh, since, it was, since the country was founded in 1948. Um, I think it's fair to say that a lot of progressive Israelis were shocked by Begin's victory. After all, this was a guy who, as a young man, was widely characterized to be a terrorist. This was a guy that uh, David Ben-Gurion, the, the George Washington of Israel, once compared to Hitler. So on the night that Begin won, uh, did you see it as a disaster for your country? Well, first of all, let me explain that in Israel, the attorney general is not a political figure. Uh, an attorney general at home is a civil servant. Right. So I was appointed by the cabinet, or the government as they call it, uh, when Rabin was prime minister. And when the gov after elections, you have a new prime minister, I continued. I've seen it as a principle that I should continue. I was already quite tired, and I thought maybe the Right. better for me to resign. My question was, as a citizen of Israel, were you shocked? Yeah, yeah. yeah I'll yeah, come yeah, to yeah. it. Yeah. So um, it was clear to me that uh, I have to continue. And I did continue, and I was quite uh, friendly with uh, Menachem Begin, and I uh, worked very closely with him. As to the question you asked, well, he was uh, a fighter for Israel's independence. He was a terrorist from the point of view of the British. And also from the point of view of Ben-Gurion, right? And of Ben-Gurion sometime. But uh, he, the moment the state was established, he recognized, the, uh, he recognized that the, the division between the different um, fractions Frictions. Mm -hmm. Should disappear. We should have one army. Haganah, Etzel, Lehi, everything should be uh, amalgamated in the army. And he was a great uh, supporter uh, of our constitution. He, is, he was the one who wanted to have a constitution to curb the government, to curb Ben Gurion. Uh, he was very much in favor of the rule of law. He was very much in favor of judicial review of legislation. He was a very active uh, a member of parliament all these days. I had no problems. Did you like him? I liked him. Mm -hmm. You stayed on as attorney general for about a year, and it turned out to be an extraordinarily ev eventful year. That was the year that Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat uh, came to Camp David uh, with Jimmy Carter as president uh, and hammered out an historic peace agreement between Israel and Egypt. You were part of the Israeli delegation, and from the accounts I read, it seems that you had a pivotal role, uh, that you basically broke what was starting to look like an insurmountable deadlock between Sadat and Begin. Uh, what, what magic did you perform there? No magic, and I don't think I was as, as important or as influential as you said. I was the legal advisor of the Israeli delegation. The Egyptian delegation had its own legal advisor. It was Osama el-Baz, a first-class lawyer. Another member of the delegation was al-Arabi, who is now the, was a judge on the 
the National Court of Justice, and I think who is now the president of the Arab League. Uh, my role there was not a political role. I did not impose my views on anyone, uh, but was a, uh, I was acting as a, as a knowledgeable lawyer, uh, trying if there was a, a stalemate to see if there are ways to go out of it. But the Camp David was not done by, by me. The Camp David was done by the two heads of the delegations, Sadat Begin and Jimmy Carter. Without him, we would not have Camp David. You take issue with the, uh, the contention that you broke the deadlock. You, you don't right. think that happened? No, I don't think so. But then Jimmy Carter calls you the hero of Camp David. All right, you should ask Jimmy Carter. <laughs> he also, I think he jokingly at one point uh, offered to nominate you to the United States Supreme Court. Is that true? It's true, jokingly. Joking. <laughs> there was no vacancy anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, of course, many years later, uh, Jimmy Carter fell into disfavor with many Jews when he wrote uh, this book called Peace Not Apartheid uh, about the Middle East peace process. And uh, the rap on the book was that he was too hard on Israel and not nearly hard enough on the Palestinians. Uh, did your feelings toward Jimmy Carter sour as a consequence of that book? No, not really. Look, he has played a very important role in achieving the, uh, the Camp David Accord and later the agreement, which was not uh, agreed in Camp David but in Washington, but the agreement between Israel and, and Egypt, which is a cornerstone mm -hmm. of, of peace in the Middle East. This is a very important role he played. And he has done it not because he loves Israel, and he has done it not because he loves Egypt, or, or not because he loves America, because, but because I think he loves peace. Mm -hmm. And whatever he has done later, and I'm also critical, I don't think one ha we have apartheid in, in Israel, and I think it's, uh, the expression apartheid is, it was not properly used there, but whatever he has done later, I don't think should affect the way we should sure. We should look at his contribution. Did you read his book, though? I glanced into it. Uh -huh. Did you have any conversation with uh, no. Jimmy no. Carter about it? No. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, in 1978, you became a justice on the Israeli Supreme Court, and I think a lot of Americans would be surprised the way justices uh, in Israel get on the Supreme Court. Uh, it's not like the United States where you have these hearings where uh, legislators get to grill the nominees on national television. It's done by a selection committee uh, relatively quietly. Uh, I believe that there's uh, the justice minister is on it, uh, three sitting Israeli Supreme Court justices are on it, a couple of bar association members are on it, a couple of members of the Knesset much more quietly done. Uh, do you think that the way you guys do it is a lot better than the way we do it? Well, I'm not here to give advice <laughs> to, to, to other countries and uh, clearly uh, not to the American system, which is uh, part of the Constitution. We are not going to change. Yeah, but, but, I mean, you when you, yeah but I mean, when you look at our confirmation hearings on TV, do, do they strike you as being terribly dysfunctional? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Let me uh, ask you a couple questions about your constitutional revolution. Um, back in 1948, Ben-Gurion promised there would be a, a constitution within a few months that would guarantee fundamental rights. 
uh, and for a variety of reasons uh, that did not happen. Then in the 1990s, you proclaimed uh, a constitutional revolution that in effect the country had uh, crossed the Rubicon from a parliamentary democracy to a constitutional one. And, and you base that claim on the passage of two laws that less than a quarter of the 120 Knesset members uh, voted for. Uh, there was no ratification process, no constitutional convention, none of the fanfare that's usually associated with the adoption of a constitution. So from the very start, wasn't the constitutional revolution that you were declaring on very, very thin ice? Well, it's not as simple uh, <laughs> as, as you presented it. So let's go first. First of all, about the, the promise of the Constitution. It was not Ben-Gurion that promised. In our Declaration of Independence, mm. which was signed by everyone, uh, it was said that, that we will have a Constitution. Mm. And we have done it because the UN resolution on the establishing of a Jewish and Arab state said that every one of those states will have a Constitution. So in our, in our Declaration of Independence, it was said that shortly um, we will, there will be elections for a constituted assembly. And the elections took place, not at the exact date, because we are in the midst of the War of Independence. But immediately, almost at the end of it, this election took place. And the constituted assembly was elected, the purpose of which is to have a constitution for the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. But this was the only elected body that was in existence at that time. We didn't have an elected parliament at that time. Mm -hmm. So they converted themselves also as a parliament. But they continued to have their constituted assembly power because they so provided expressly. And when they decided to dissolve themselves, they said that the second parliament will have the same powers as they have and every other parliament afterwards. And this, and so the, so the question was, how will they e execute this power? And the answer they themselves gave, there was a special resolution to this effect, that they will enact basic laws. Right. And every basic a, law... A piecemeal way a of piecemeal putting together way. a constitution. That's right. That's right. And now in 1992, one of the blocks of this piecemeal, basic law, dignity and liberty, was enacted in my terminology, was constituted. Yes. We were sitting nine judges, and we construed it, and we decided that this was an execution not of a regulatory statutory power, but this was an execution of the parliament as a constituted assembly, the power that they have as from 48. But did they know what they were doing? Oh, yes, they knew. They knew very well what, what, they, what they were doing. And they knew very well that it's not a regular statute that they're enacting, that it's a basic law they're enacting. I mean, uh, yeah. and, they, and most of them even knew very well that the, it, it means that they are enacting a super statutory provision and that there will be judicial review. But I think you yourself said that this re revolution was carried out, I think you used the word clandestinely. That That's the right. The media didn't pay attention to That's it. That's right. I mean, it was kind of done under the radar. This is That's like a, right. a big deal That's right. that no one really paid attention to. That's right. Uh, Doesn't that put the revolution on thin ice? So. First of all, one should realize the revolution was, was made not by the court, mm -hmm. 
the revolution was done by parliament, that they decided to enact a statute, which when you read it, when you construe it, it's quite clear that that's a super statute. When a statute tells you, mm-hmm. we have this principle, details will be provided in law, details will be provided in law. When you have a statute that says those rights may be limited, but only by statute, who is for a proper purpose, and is proportional. When you, re- when you see all this, it's quite clear mm-hmm. that this document, that this uh, legislation is a super statutory legislation. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone, or most of them, had this understanding. Yeah, it's a pity that it didn't go in a more ceremonial way. Uh, it's a pity that the whole thing was not presented to, the pe- to we the people for, mm-hmm. uh, for vote. Uh, and it's, it's a, even the greater pity that the basic, laws, the basic laws project is not finalized, that they are still missing some of the basic laws. And mm-hmm. so we are basically in the midst of this uh, uh, constitutional development. It's mm-hmm. not over yet. We don't ha- have yet a full constitution. We don't have yet a full Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. As well as serving as a de facto Bill of Rights, those basic laws very explicitly stated that Israel was both a Jewish and a democratic state. And there's you know, an obvious tension there because 20% of Israel's citizens are not Jewish. Uh, you, I think, uh, had an elegant solution to that tension. You basically said that let's define Jewishness in an abstract enough way that it does not conflict with democratic principles. And I I think that was a very elegant solution to a very, very difficult problem. Uh, But it's fair to say, is it not, that uh, those elements in in Israeli society that think of themselves as very religious, uh, that solution is not something that made them very happy at all. Uh, Is that fair? Well, I don't know. Uh, usually the extremes are not happy. <laughs> uh, but you are right. Uh, our, this basic law, and this is one of the importance, says that the values of Israel are the values of a Jewish and democratic state. Again, you see the, the constitutional voice here. Yes. It's not a regular statutory voice. Now, the question, what, what does it mean the values of Israel as a Jewish state, and what does it mean the values of Israel as, as a democracy? And what we said is the following. The values of Israel as a democracy means all those values that are common to most democracies. Yeah. We had a case in which the question was, can the state uh, rent land, its land? Most of the land in Israel is state-owned. Yes. May it lend, uh, rent its land to a body that will not, that is not ready to sublet it to Arabs. Well, this is the Katsir case, correct? This is the Katsir case, or the Kardan case. Right, this was a community uh, built exclusively for Jews with the help of government subsidies. uh, and And the question was, did they have a right to bar Arab Israeli citizens from living there? Um, and I think, you know, from a justice standpoint, from an equality standpoint, it seems to me that was a pretty easy case. But you said at the time that it was the hardest case you had ever decided. Why was it so difficult? Well, it was difficult because it was, I understood that it would be misunderstood. I mean, therefore, it was difficult. 
Uh, you, uh, I agree with you. It was not a difficult case uh, just from the technical point of view. And so we decided that uh, in Israel we have equality. And, and the values of the state of Israel don't run, as a Jewish state, don't run against equality. We said in the, in the Jewish tradition you have many things about the, the non-Jew. There are those uh, trends who have a negative approach to the non-Jew in Israel, mm-hmm. and there are those who have a positive approach to the non-Jew. Uh, the non-Jew is, is, is your brother. So from those attitudes, we should pick up this attitude that fits our democracy. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we should pick up the idea of equality. I mentioned in my judgment that we Jews were, were, were discriminated so many years when we were in the diaspora. And it was clear to, I think, every one of us that when we come and we have our own state, that we will have full equality. And therefore, uh, there is nothing, in, neither in the Jewish tradition, Jewish values, of course not in democratic values, which will allow discrimination uh, of non-Jews. And that's the whole theory of Israel as a Jewish and democratic value. It, is not, it does not mean that Israel has a, a, an official religion. It does not mean that the Jewish religion is, is, is an official religion in Israel. It is not. Mm-hmm. What it does mean is that, as I see it, is that Israel is the solution to the Jewish problem. Yeah. It does mean thus that everyone who enters into Israel, in fulfilling the raison d'etre of the state of Israel, if he is Jewish, he will immediately become an Israeli citizen if yeah. he wants if not, he has to go via a process of nationalization, as you have it here. But, I said, the moment as someone is in the house, we should have full equality. Yeah. The key to enter the house, Jews have a special key because of this idea of Israel as a, as a homeland of the Jewish people. This but equality? This Katsir case that you just described was decided in 2000, and at the time it was widely compared to uh, our Brown v. Board of Education. What has been the ripple effect of that decision? Have Since that one family that appeared before your core, this a- Arab-Israeli family, uh, got the, uh, the, the decision it wanted and was ultimately able to move in, although I think it was like a dozen years after that decision that this family was able to move in, have other families, other Arab-Israeli families, been able to move in to other uh communities that were built exclusively for Jews? I have no idea. I know that the Kadan family, it took them some time. Yeah. But I, I view it as part of the regular inefficiency of the Israeli... But, you know, just last year, uh, I noticed there was an admissions committee law that was passed by the Knesset. And, and this law, while it did not say that communities had to, the right to bar people because of race or ethnicity did say that these communities have the right to bar people because they don't fit into, quote, the socio-cultural tenor of the community. And, you know, I know that sounds to me like not too subtle code for giving these communities the right to discriminate as they've always discriminated. Against, uh, discriminated. Uh, does it seem that way to you? Well, I, I know about this law. Uh, and to the best of my knowledge, a case is pending in the Supreme Court in which the question is, is this statute constitutional? So the court will decide. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, of all the opinions you've ever written, I think, that, well, clearly, 
the opinion that's most often quoted is the one you wrote in 1999, uh, finding that Israel's security services uh, could not legally torture its detainees, uh, even in so-called ticking time bomb situations. Uh, let me just read a little bit from that opinion. You wrote, we are aware that this decision does not make it easier to deal with the reality of terrorism. This is the fate of democracy. Sometimes a democracy must fight with one hand tied behind its back. Nonetheless, it has the upper hand, preserving the rule of law and the recognition of individual liberties constitute an important component of its understanding of security. At the end of the day, they strengthen its spirit and allow it to overcome its difficulties. Uh, you know, I must say I find those words very moving, uh, you know, particularly given what happened you know, in, with our country with respect to Abu Ghraib and who knows how many other places. But I wonder, when you wrote that opinion, there were estimates floating around that as many as 85% uh, of uh, the Palestinian detainees were being subjected to the interrogation techniques that you objected to, things like shaking and sleep deprivation and keeping people in stress positions for hours on end. Did you have a lot of confidence that after you issued that decision that these interrogation techniques would suddenly be abandoned? Absolutely. Were they? Absolutely. Uh -huh. Remember the Rabin case, uh -huh. the rule of law. Everyone is under the law. Uh -huh. In fact, when I uh, when I left the court, I got a present from the, our security forces. They gave me the original telegram that was sent on the day our judgment was rendered. The judgment was rendered at nine o'clock, so I think it was sent at ten o'clock to all the interrogators. Stop. Mm. So if you embrace this I idea that democracies have to fight with one hand tied behind its back, uh, the next question, it seems to me, is to what extent, how far do you take that logic? And there was a case uh, in 1998 that you wrote an opinion on. Uh, it involved uh, the, uh, the question was whether or not it was legal to hold people in captivity uh, for years on end, who did not pose a security threat, but who it was thought could be bargaining chips to get Israeli soldiers released. And at the time, you, wrote, you uh, ruled in favor of the military. You said, quote, I am convinced that detentions of individuals for the sake of freeing our missing and captured men constitutes a vital interest of the state. In situations like this, you added, damage to basic human rights is obligatory, sometimes even grave and painful damage. Now, two years later, that same issue came before you and you reversed yourself. So what changed between 1998 and, and 2000 to change your mind on that issue? Well, I had just more time to reflect on it and I came to the conclusion that I made a mistake. Mm -hmm. I think judges that make mistakes should uh, as quickly as possible uh, Did you have an epiphanal moment, uh, something you saw on the news? <laughs> no, no, no epiphany. I had time to think about it, to reflect on it, uh -huh. uh, to ask myself, was I right? 
to to read the uh, the briefs of all the parties and i came to the conclusion that i was wrong and in fact my colleagues were so nice to me that they asked me if i'm ready to write the judgment that over uh-huh. overturns my own judgment and i said with great pleasure in fact and you said and very explicitly it. in that second opinion i you know i changed my mind yeah i said yeah. so i made yeah. a mistake sorry yeah luckily enough my mistakes are not buried in the in the ground let's let's talk about the the, uh, the demolition of homes I don't think the Israeli Supreme Court on principle ever said that uh, or ever ruled on the issue on the question of whether it was permissible to uh, destroy the homes of relatives who had committed terrorist acts even if those families had no idea what what those terrorists were up to um, uh, but then in 2000, well, for, for, just step back a minute, the, 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 ex, the uh, um, justification for that practice was, uh, of course, deterrence. But then in 2005, the military itself decided to stop the demolitions, and it said, you know what, you know, this doesn't deter very much. In fact, it may make things worse because, you know, when you d- destroy people's homes, it makes people angry. So given what the military decided, I'm wondering if that suggests that your court should have been more aggressive about questioning the rationale for uh, that practice. Well, we questioned the rationale and we we got answers based on facts. Mm -hmm. And uh, we assumed, and I assume also now, that the facts were right. And on them, the decision was made. I am happy that the army changed its view. And so it will now be very difficult for yeah. the army to go back to it. But, you know, there was one case where the petitioners were saying, make the army prove that, it's det- that, it, has a deterrent, uh, that, that it has deterrent value. Let's see their data. And the court ruled that the military did not have to produce that data. I don't, I don't remember it. Uh-huh. I, I'm sure that if such data would, was available, we would order them to produce it. Mm-hmm. Because there is no secret in this data. Uh-huh. We order them to produce much more important uh, things. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, I had read that there was a case where a demand was made and the court didn't. I think basically, generally, the, our, our judgment on these issues as our judgments on other issues, as my judgment on this and other issues, mm-hmm. they went through a, a progress, uh, through a, a, a path of, of development. Evolved. Evolved, yeah. exactly. In the beginning, I remember myself adjudicating those questions in terms of the internal Israeli law. So there was an, a provision in our law that allowed to... Uh, to order demolition of houses. Mm-hmm. So why construing this law, we said, yes, but they can do it only in very, very, very uh, severe cases. If a, s- a stone is thrown and the, uh, and the car is injured, you are not going, or even if someone is, is, is wounded, this, there's not a reason to destroy even his house. But you need the proportionality. There is the yes. first time that we started to work uh, to use proportionality. At a later stage, uh, 
from my from my own point of view, we slowly, slowly, I also realized things that I didn't know in the past that there is a whole bunch of international law, humanitarian law, dealing with those questions, and that this international humanitarian law is part of and parcel of our own legal system because they represent our common law. Mm-hmm. And then we started, or I myself started, to think about it in terms of international humanitarian law. Mm-hmm. And if you'll see most of my judgments later, the, the center of it is international humanitarian law. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about settlements. I mean, that's, and, and international law is a good transition point to talk about the settlements. Uh, and the threshold question is, uh, if you read uh, the 4th Geneva Convention, and if you read the Hague Regulations, is the inescapable reasonable conclusion that one must come to is that all of the settlements, whether on the West Bank or uh, in East Jerusalem, uh, are in violation of international law? I really don't want to talk about it. It's, it's such a, a, a hot topic in Israel. Right. Nowadays. And in, as we speak, the construction continues. Uh, well, Prime Minister Netanyahu just two weeks ago announced that he was going to be constructing 1,100 more units. Yeah, but uh, that's in Jerusalem. So that, yeah. that from the Israeli point of view, it doesn't raise those questions because he, Jerusalem is part of Israel. Israeli law applies there. And, and so mm-hmm. th- that's another question. Okay. But the, the, the same question may come up uh, in, in other places. As, as, as it is such a hot topic... I, I must impose on myself some restrictions. You know, once a judge, always a judge. So I don't. I try not to express views that can that can either affect the the judgments of the court in the future, or that can affect the understanding of my judgment in the, in the past. So. Uh, uh, what I can tell you is what I wrote in, in, in my judgment on the, on the fence. Because in this judgment, I took account of, the ju- of a judgment which was rendered several weeks earlier. This is the security the, wall you're yeah, talking about? by okay. the International Court of Justice. Yeah. And there, the International Court of Justice said, look, uh, they said, the defense is illegal because its aim is to protect the settlements, and the settlements are illegal. This is basically what they said. Right. And my reaction was, I don't, I don't express any view if the settlements are legal or illegal, because this was not the case before me. But even if the settlements are illegal, the settlers are not outlawed. And as long as they are there, they should be protected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You cannot go just and shoot them, just because they are there illegally. And the question of the settlement should be decided within the peace agreement. Mm-hmm. And, I, and as you know, it is, it is on the table there. So th- this was my reaction to this angle of, of, of the argument. Otherwise, uh, I know it's an open question and it's, it's not an easy question. And, and uh, the rationale in the beginning of the settlement was security. <coughs> well, and some would argue that was a pretense, right? Some argued it was. And in fact, you know, while the pretense was being maintained, there was a, a 
the political leaders of Israel were very openly saying, we want to put as many settlements as possible on the West Bank to make the establishment of a Palestinian state as difficult as possible. Uh, Again, don't, don't drag me into it. It's, <laughs> not, it's not so simple. I mean, different parties have different views. Yeah, but the Supreme Court did go on the record with settlements with the landmark case was the Elon Moret case yes. in 1979. We, yeah, we said that if the purpose of a settlement is security, yeah. if there is an, a security necessity, it's fine. Yes. Well, I think and also... And we ordered yeah. the demolition of a settlement that we thought there was no proof that it is for... Right, and I, I believe Moshe Landau, who wrote the opinion in that case, uh, he was the chief justice then, uh, said you can't, on the pretense of security, steal people's land. That's right. And you know, to to establish uh, a, you know a permanent settlement, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, what the, this what was special to this case is that this the settlement was was built on land owned privately by the Arab uh, right. settl- uh, inhabitants there. Uh, after this case. Uh, no, no new settlements were built on the land that is not that is owned privately. They were built. All these illegal outposts. All these are built on on what what the Israeli government calls state land, which is land that belongs to the to the state, that belongs to the to the crown to the to the uh, Jordanian crown, but and not is not does not belong to individuals. But uh, Justice Barak, you're, you're familiar with the Sasson report, aren't you? That uh, came out in 2005, which basically concluded that Israeli law had been systematically violated for years with respect to uh, taking of private Palestinian land. Well, first of all, uh, and this, uh, this was a government report that, of all people, uh, Sharon, Ariel Sharon, yeah, had commissioned. Yeah. yeah. First of all, uh, I just want to make it clear, Israeli law doesn't apply in the West Bank. So the uh, the law that applies in the West Bank is the law as it was there before our occupation. Mm -hmm. And the additional laws that are applicable then, since then. So when when we were there, uh, occupying it as a belligerent occupant, uh, it was, uh, in addition to the old law, there was legislation by the Israeli military commander. Now that the military commander is out, my, I think most of it was abolished by the, uh, by the uh, Palestinian uh, authority. And they have legislated to it. So it was not a question of Israeli law. Uh, uh, but I think what the Sasson report says, that decisions of the government were not fulfilled that in many, many cases the government said this is an illegal settlement, take it away. And those decisions were not uh, fulfilled. Yeah, and it was illegal. I mean, it was in violation. Yeah, but it was an illegal, you know, in the face of the Elon Morad decision. I don't know to what extent she, uh, this Hassan report, went into every settlement from the point of view of the Elon Morad decision. Uh But it was enough that the government itself said that it's illegal. Right. So they should perform the, their own uh, decisions. And, and I believe the report said that, that th- these violations had become institutionalized. It, it used that word. 
Um, I don't remember that, but uh, yeah, look, we have three, almost 300,000 settlers now. In right. Israel. I mean, at the time of the Elon Moret decision, there were 10,000, right? Uh, 327,000? 20,000, I think. 20,000? Okay. I think when we were in Camp David, there were 20,000. Okay. Now there are more than 10 times. Yeah. Yeah, it's a major problem. But by the end of your tenure, um, there were not only were the, the ultra-religious elements mad at you, mad at the court, but also liberals were mad at the court. And the argument that the liberals made was that by uh, curbing the excesses of the occupation, uh, the court uh, legitimized the occupation. Uh, Tom Segev, uh, a, a writer for Haaretz, uh, in a very harsh op-ed said, uh, Barack gave the horrors of the oppression a legitimate front. Decent people can tell themselves that if Barack could live with the occupation, then so can they. His guilt is therefore greater than that of people doing the dirty work out in the field. That, that's an awfully tough comment, and I think an unfair one. But is there any scintilla of truth to it, do you think, at all? Well, I, I know this criticism was raised by a very tiny minority of, of, of liberals, let's say. Yeah. Because they understood very well that the involvement of the Supreme Court, it's not just my involvement, the, the whole involvement of the Supreme Court. From the first day, the, 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 the Attorney General then was Shamgar, who later was a judge on the Supreme Court. And right. And when the first cases started to come before the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court asked the Attorney General, do we have jurisdiction in those matters? And he said, yes. I, on behalf of the State of Israel, we have full jurisdiction. We will never argue that, with the, that the Supreme Court doesn't have jurisdiction. So I think it was quite clear that what the Supreme Court, through those years, and don't forget many, many years since '67. What the Supreme Court has done is to preserve the rule of law in this area. And that without the Supreme Court's existence there, the situation of the local population would be worse. Ask them, mm -hmm. and they will tell you. The Supreme Court has done a job, good job. They could do a better job from their point of view. They would come, you know, we would have every year from 67 until the Oslo Agreement, something like two or 250 cases per year, the Supreme Court, from Arabs and also later also from Israeli settlers who, who, that came to the court and argued against all kinds of events that occurred in their daily life. And we were trying to do justice. Hmm. In some cases we failed. We are human. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the idea that it's better, it's better if it's worse, I don't accept it. Um, both uh, uh, Ehud Olmert and Ehud Barak have said that if there isn't a peace agreement relatively soon, uh, Israel could degenerate into an apartheid state. Do, do you see that as a, uh, a big danger? I will not answer all these kind of questions. Not because they are not important. They may be more important than whatever, <laughs> everything that we discussed until now. Yeah. But I feel res restrained. I feel that You're I should You're tired not. now. You can, you can shoot your mouth off and no, no one... Uh, <laughs> once a judge, always a judge. I uh, just can't do it. Uh -huh. 
Uh, I'm not a politician. I'm not running for any office. And I don't think that I should do anything that uh, affects uh, the options open for anyone. I have my views, but to answer your questions, I should use my expertise as a politician. I have no expertise as a politician. But you're a you're citizen. A, yeah. So us, there are, so, there are seven and a half million citizens. There's no reason why you pick, why you should pick me up. It's just a random uh, yeah. selection. Absolutely. <laughs> so it's a random selection. And if I'm called randomly. Well, you, you have think, said on the answer. record that you, you definitely, you know, reject the, uh, uh, the charge, uh, if that's the correct word to use, that you're a post-Zionist. That's right. Uh, so, so what is what does that mean? Uh, well, some of my critics say that I am a post-Zionist, meaning by that that yeah, I am I, I don't care about Zionism. That I, I, I care more about the rights of the Arabs than about the rights of the Jews. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's just nonsense. I care of the right of every human being. But you have this country where you have to reconcile democracy and the Jewishness of the state. And it's sometimes a very difficult thing to do, isn't it? It's not an easy task, but in most cases it can be, it can be solved. If you view it as I tried to, to show, if you try to ask yourself what are the values of Israel as a Jewish state and what are the options open, Judaism is a, such a rich phenomena, such a rich uh, um, block of thoughts, thousands of years. So you can find in Judaism many, many streams, many, many ideas. Right, right. Uh, Judaism will tell you that the woman is terrible and that the woman is the crown. And you, sh you have to pick, you have to choose. And you should choose those values that are part of Judaism, but that also are part of democracy. You know, I asked... Uh, Alan Dershowitz was on this program about a year ago, and he wrote a book called The Vanishing American Jew, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. And uh, in that book he wrote, l let me just read you this quote. He said, maybe Israel will not endure forever as a Jewish state. Maybe it will normalize, as Theodore Herzl put it, and become like most other states, which began as religious, but became secular and multicultural over time. I read that passage to Professor Der Dershowitz, and I asked him, well, you know, it was an interesting passage, but it wasn't clear from the context whether he thought it was a good thing. And so I asked him, do you think it would be a good thing? And he responded, I think it would be a good thing over time if it happened naturally as the result of democratic processes and as a result of peace. For me, that would be a natural development and a good development, but it would have to come from inside. You agree? Yep. He's a good friend of mine, and sometimes I even agree with him. <laughs> <laughs> Justice Barack, well, it's been a, such a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.